Lecture 5, Work and Faith in Anglo-Saxon England. Welcome back. Last time, we looked at how England converted to Christianity. Now that we've got the English more or less Christianized, I want to take a little detour from our chronological narrative to do something I promised to do at the very beginning of the course, which is to stop periodically and look at the question of what daily life was like for English men and women. We'll look at English society roughly in the 7th and 8th centuries. We'll look at the whole social spectrum from top to bottom. But really, the important part of the lecture will be the chance to focus on people on the bottom of the social ladder. We'll pay plenty of attention to them. Along the way, we'll look both at the material aspects of life and at the spiritual aspects of life. What were the conditions of daily living? But also, what are the ways in which people might find solace in their faith? And what was the practice of that faith like? So that's what I want to cover in this lecture. The first point I want to make is daily life in Anglo-Saxon England could be very different depending on a number of factors. One was your social class. It obviously made a very big difference if you were rich versus if you were poor. But it could also make a big difference what part of the country you were from or even what village. The health and prosperity of Anglo-Saxon communities could vary a lot, even if they were quite close to one another. So let's keep in mind that within the general outlines of what I'm going to talk about, there's enormous variation. So let's start at the top of the social hierarchy, and we'll work our way downwards. What's it like to be an Anglo-Saxon king? Well, the most important thing to say is that it could be very, very dangerous. I've mentioned a few times that there wasn't a very well-established system to decide who's going to succeed to the throne. There's a general presumption that it's going to be a son of the previous king, but there were many, many instances where that isn't what happened. For example, the ruling house of Wessex, known as the Line of Curdic. The ruling house disappears from view for most of the 8th century. There are five kings in a row. We don't have any idea who they are. We don't know if they have royal connections or not. They may simply have been powerful enough to make themselves king. Or maybe they're related to the royal family so distantly that we can't figure out how anymore. There's not a lot of dynastic stability. But the overwhelming fact of life for a king is that he might have to fight to stay in power. Death in battle is common. We've seen that already with King Edwin of Northumbria. Also, assassination was something that Anglo-Saxon kings had very good reason to be afraid of. For example, King Athelbald of Mercia was murdered by night in 757 by his own bodyguard. And his story hints that there were maybe some irregularities in his private life that may somehow have led to the murder. There is the record of a gift of land that the king gave to an abbess in Mercia, quote, because he had stabbed or smitten her kinsmen. So this gift of land is a payoff as in the Weregild system we described in a previous lecture. It's possible that the king had gotten himself involved in a deadly feud uh, with a powerful Mercian family. It obviously had to be powerful if an abbess belonged to it, because an abbess is going to necessarily come from a power fa powerful family. So it's thus dangerous to be the king. 
You might have to spend your time worrying about external enemies like King Edwin or internal enemies like King Athelbald. But what do you do the rest of the time? Mostly kings are just trying to maintain their power with respect to other kings. And there seems to have been a kind of informal pecking order within the Anglo-Saxon heptarchy about which king is preeminent at any one time. And this competition for supremacy is about being the top dog. And the English have a word for it, Bretwalda. So what's a Bretwalda? It's an Anglo-Saxon term, and loosely it means Britain ruler, the person who is supreme in Britain. And in a later text, the Anglo-Saxon Chronicle, we have a list, and it supposedly contains all the Bretwaldas of this period, starting from the late 6th century and going down to the early 9th century. So what does it mean to be a Bretwalda? Now, people used to think that this is some kind of official office that kings compete for, a kind of acknowledgement. You are the most powerful king in Britain at the moment. But scholars don't really think this anymore. They think the title is a lot more informal than that. It's a kind of a compliment you might pay to a ruler, perhaps when you write a flattering poem about him. So there's really not the office of Bretwalda in any official sense, but clearly kings want to be thought of as Bretwalda. And being powerful enough to be considered Bretwalda is nice because it means you might have less to fear from your rivals, and they might have more to fear from you. And the list of Bretwaldas in the Anglo-Saxon Chronicle does show a pattern that roughly represents the political center of gravity in England as it shifts over time. Starting from the early 7th century in Kent with King Athelbert, the first convert to Christianity. Then we go up to Northumbria in the mid-7th century. We talked about Northumbria last time. And then we'll see in the next lecture how things shift again to Mercia and then to Wessex. So the Anglo-Saxon kings are always trying to maintain their position with regard to the other kings, and they're trying to defend themselves against attack from inside and out. Now, materially speaking, the lives of the kings could be pretty comfortable. You'll remember the story that we heard in the last lecture when King Edwin's follower is comparing life to a sparrow flying in and out of the king's hall. Well, in the story, the King's Hall is a very good place to be. You want to be in the King's Hall. Now, we don't have a lot of records of what these halls were like, physically speaking, because they don't survive. They were all made of timber. But there is a remarkable site that has been excavated in the north of England at Old Yavering. And it's probably the very Northumbrian royal palace where the conversion of Northumbria under King Edwin took place. We've got the post holes in the ground, so we can see how big the buildings were in this compound. There are four great halls, each of which is 300 square meters in area. These are very substantial buildings. Now, remember how King Edwin's rather philosophical follower talks about how nice it is in the King's Hall? One reason he thought it was so great in the King's Hall may have been the fact that that's where feasting occurred. Now, this is one of the big ways in which kings show how rich and powerful they are. It's a primitive society. Food is scarce. So you show your power by consuming food in abundance. And not just food. Alcohol is probably just as important as food. 
In Anglo-Saxon poems, queens are praised for being cupbearers. They were the ones who brought around the drink. They were dispensers of mead. And the king's followers seem to have taken plenty of advantage of what was on offer. We actually have rules that survive from this period about not drawing weapons where drinking was going on. Clearly a very good idea. It's a culture that takes drinking extremely seriously. But all of that display is expensive. How can the kings afford all this? By the period we're talking about, the kings have managed to organize their lands into territories that owe tribute. And each of these territories would have a tribute center, where people would have to bring the produce that they owed to the king. Archaeologists have excavated one of these tribute centers in Mercia at a place called Higgum Ferrers in Northamptonshire. It had various buildings for gathering in different kinds of foodstuffs. It had a cattle enclosure for livestock. If what you owed the king were cattle, you could bring them there and they would go into the enclosure. There were ovens, there was a mill, and there were also residences for a small permanent staff. So there's quite an elaborate infrastructure that is supporting the lifestyle of these Anglo-Saxon kings. Now, the kings are not in these halls alone. And that brings me to the next level down in the social hierarchy, to the king's followers, or nobles, called the thanes. We've seen the thanes in action already. These are the people who give the king advice, whether to convert to Christianity, whether to go to war against the Mercians, that sort of thing. These are prosperous men, but they're dependent on the king for power. He gives them land. So life for them could be as precarious as it was for the kings themselves. They're subject to the same dangers of military campaigns that the king is. That's the reason that he gives them favors. He wants them to be soldiers. And thanes have to travel just like kings. Quite often they have more than one estate that they have to worry about, so they would be itinerant. They would travel from one estate to another, and at each estate they would check on how things were going with the agricultural labor on the state and they might eat up some of the produce at the same time. It was probably a very busy, very anxious time for the people living on the estate when the Lord shows up periodically to check on them. So, basically the lifestyles of kings and lords are similar, and they're supported by people at the bottom of the social hierarchy. So let's talk now about the people who are working hard to pay for the people at the top, because kings and lords are a very tiny proportion of the population. What about those workers on the estates? Many of them were slaves. I've mentioned this is a hierarchical society. It's a society very comfortable with the institution of slavery. A lot of these estates owned by the nobles would be worked by slaves under the supervision of a reeve, who was basically an overseer. Nobles have reeves on their estates just like kings. And the life of a slave under these reeves could obviously be very harsh. And slavery is something that can happen to almost anyone. If you fall into the wrong hands in war, if you're hit by hard times, you might end up a slave. But slaves are never the majority of the population. Most of the people are rather humble, free farmers. They spend all their time raising crops and livestock. They might owe tribute, but they're also working for themselves. And these people are known as churls. Now, we have a word churl in modern English. It's not a nice word. To call someone churlish is not a compliment. It can mean coarse or rude, inappropriate, that sort of thing. 
Really, the word churl, as we use it in modern English, is kind of a fossilized record of social snobbery. Because people at the top of society tend to associate people at the bottom of the society with everything negative. But what's it like for these farmers? I don't think we'll call them churls, it's just too confusing. They mostly live in fairly small villages, between a couple of dozen and a few hundred people. And again, we don't have a whole lot of evidence of what their houses were like, but we do have post holes and we do have aerial photography, that sort of thing. They mostly built long houses of timber, and they're made somewhat waterproof by wattle and daub. Wattle and daub is the fancy archaeological term for mud and sticks, basically. They use those to uh, make the, the houses a little bit uh, more impervious to the elements. Now, these longhouses could be quite large, as big as 16 by 7 meters. That's quite a reasonable footprint. They also built more specialized buildings, sheds for storage, workshops, that sort of thing. So they can be reasonably well housed, many of them. Now, almost all of their effort would have to have been spent making a living out of the soil. And one basic fact about farming in this period is technology is very primitive. They can't plow a very deep furrow. They don't have horse collars. And this means they can't take the best advantage of the traction of their animals. They also don't have a very effective system of crop rotation. At this period, they basically have a two-field system. They would put a crop in the field one year, they would let the, the field lie fallow the next. And this means only half their land is in productive use at any one time. They also don't have very effective fertilizers. Really, the best fertilizer they have is animal manure. But there's a chronic shortage of that because livestock are scarce. It's expensive to maintain livestock. You have to feed them over the winter. You have to set aside hay for them. And so that means you don't have an excess of livestock that you don't have enough manure, perhaps, to fertilize the fields. It can be kind of a vicious cycle. And it means that crop yields in this period are extremely low, and many Anglo-Saxon communities are hovering on the brink of starvation a lot of the time. We're really talking about subsistence. But we have evidence from Anglo-Saxon cemeteries that the fate of these communities could vary quite a lot. Archaeologists have done a lot of work on these cemeteries. They've analyzed the human remains in the cemeteries. And they've been able to tell quite a lot about the health of the population in the settlements from which the people came. Some cemeteries show signs of serious stress on the population. If you analyze the teeth and bones in these burials, you can see signs of overwork, signs that people have had to carry heavy loads or pull heavy burdens, maybe a plow, for example. There's also a lot of evidence for bone fractures, some of which have healed badly. The people with these fractures, some of whom lived many years after the injury, they must have been in constant pain for years. Now, scholars figure that most of these injuries probably came from farming accidents. Farm work can be very dangerous. You also see signs of disease, arthritis, various vitamin and mineral deficiencies, this would indicate that the people are not getting a varied enough diet. So it could be very difficult, it could be very painful to live in Anglo-Saxon England. On the other hand, there are cemeteries where a lot of the residents of that particular settlement seem to have lived healthy lives to a ripe old age. It's not true that there were no old people in the Middle Ages. 
What could account for these disparities? There are several possibilities. One is that in a society that's almost completely dependent on agriculture, it matters a lot where you settle. The fertility of the soil can vary, and that can have a huge impact on the health of the community. Broadly speaking, it's going to be a better life in the lowland plains where it's easy to farm than it's going to be in the rocky north and west. But these differences have even been seen in communities that were relatively close together. Soils can vary a lot even in a relatively small area, so that's one possibility. Another possibility is simply bad luck. A community might be hit by an outbreak of disease and it might never recover. All over England, there are signs of villages that were abandoned. And this happens right throughout English history. Settlements might reach a tipping point where it's simply no longer viable for people to continue there. So, while there are some fortunate exceptions, I think it's fair to say that for the vast majority of Anglo-Saxons, life can be, if we want to paraphrase Thomas Hobbes, it can be kind of nasty, brutish, and short. But there may have been some consolations on the spiritual level that made up for this very tough physical environment that people have to cope with. So here I want to turn for the remainder of the lecture to what religion may have had to offer to the Anglo-Saxons. And we'll pick up here on what we talked about in the last lecture. At that point, we talked about conversion as a top-down process. We talked about how the decision of the king to convert to Christianity sets the tone for the rest of society. Now, of course, the first people to convert are the king's followers, the thanes. But then they take Christianity out to their estates. But it does take a while for the new faith to trickle down to the people on the bottom of the social hierarchy. And we have good reason to wonder how Christian the people are who have officially embraced Christianity. So what's our evidence for the process being gradual? One thing is, it takes a long time for people to change their personal religious habits. And here, archaeology can be extremely helpful. I talked last time about the spectacular burial site at Sutton Hoo. Well, it's probably one of the last of its kind. As people convert to Christianity, they stop having themselves buried with grave goods. That's a custom associated with paganism. Christians are not supposed to do that. This is a terrible loss to archaeology. Archaeologists hate it when a community converts to Christianity because all of a sudden they have a lot less data. But even though you don't have pagan grave goods anymore, you do still find with people quite a number of Thor's hammer amulets, even rather late in the period of supposed conversion. Now what are we supposed to make of this? Does it mean that there are still quite a few hardcore supporters of Thor around? Or does it mean these objects are traditional? People don't want to stop wearing them. Maybe their grandfather gave it to them. Regardless, I think it tells us that there's a long period when there's still some fluctuating going on in religious identity. Certainly not everybody is 100% Christian the way the missionaries might like to see them. Now, another way you can tell that there's a lot of paganism surviving is in some of the magical charms that survive. These are in manuscripts from quite a bit later in the period. So if you still have them preserved later on, it's probably even more the case that they're common in this early period we're talking about now. 
Now these are a little bit similar in a way to the cursed tablets that I talked about from Roman Bath. These are uh, ways of dealing with a situation that you can't cope with otherwise. You're calling on some sort of supernatural force to help you deal with a problem, uh, often a health problem. In this case, in the case of these charms, what you get really is an instruction booklet to deal with your specific problem. And sometimes these charms contain a very endearing mixture of the new faith and the old. And I've got a great example of this for you. This is from a mid-10th century medical manuscript called Bald's Leech Book. And it gives you two choices of what to do to cure a horse or a cow who was shot by an elf. I bet you've always wondered what you're supposed to do in that situation. Well, you've got two options. Here's the first. If a horse or other cattle is elf shot, take dock seed and Scottish wax and let a man sing 12 masses over them and put holy water on the horse or cattle. Have the herbs always with you. So that's option one. You can also try option two. For the same affliction, take an eye of a broken needle, give the horse a prick with it in the ribs. No harm shall come. All right, problem solved. Now I think there's a wonderful mixture in this of pagan magic, but also a kind of a respect for Christian symbols. You've got holy water, you've got masses. Now, one gets a sense that the Anglo-Saxons are just happy to add some new Christian elements into the repertoire. They're not necessarily going to throw the baby out with the bathwater. This is along the same lines, I think, as King Radwald and his temple that mixes pagan and Christian worship in one location. Now, one reason I think that the Anglo-Saxons are comfortable mixing paganism and Christianity is that they don't really see them as all that different. Now, this might seem a rather startling proposition. It certainly would have distressed some of the churchmen of the time, but there can often be a pretty big divide between the way a religion is preached by clerics and the way it's experienced by the laity. And I think we have a good example of, what I, of this that I think tells us a lot about how Christianity gets a foothold in Anglo-Saxon society and why it takes so long for paganism to go away completely. I want to talk for a moment about an object. It's called the Frank's casket. The name of the object is confusing. It doesn't have anything at all to do with the people called the Franks, the people who lived in Gaul and gave their name to the kingdom of the Franks. It's just called the Franks casket because in the 19th century it was briefly owned by somebody named Augustus Franks. Now what it is, is a small ivory box. It's only 229 millimeters long and 129 millimeters high. It seems to date from the early 8th century. Probably it's a product of the Northumbrian Renaissance. It may have been a reliquary. That is, it may have been intended to hold relics, bodily remains of the saints. The curious thing about it is that on it is carved scenes from the life of Christ, but also scenes from Roman history and scenes from Germanic mythology. It's a kind of 
multicultural catch-all. It's got everything. The really striking thing is which Germanic myth the casket represents. It's the story of Wieland the Smith. This was a very well-known story. Wieland was a smith who was captured by the evil king Nithad. Nithad lamed Wieland and forced him to work for the king, making beautiful objects. Wieland eventually escapes, but before that, he exacts a terrible revenge for the ill treatment he has suffered. When the king's two sons come to check on Wieland's work, he kills them, and he makes their skulls into cups, and he serves drink in these cups to their father, the king. He turns their eyes into gems and gives them to their mother as a gift. And when the king's daughter comes to Wieland to get a ring repaired, he drugs her and rapes her and impregnates her, and only then does he make his escape. So that's the story on one side of the Frank's casket. On the other side, we have the gifts of the Magi. Now on the surface, that would seem to be a pretty startling juxtaposition. But one scholar of Anglo-Saxon England has made a very convincing case that what we see here is actually evidence for the fact that English people in the 8th century don't really see a lot of difference between the story of Wieland and the story of Christ, certainly not as much as you might think. For them, both stories are about lordship, and on the Franks casket you have good lordship and bad lordship. Christ is a good lord. You're supposed to be loyal to him. You bring him gifts. But King Nithod is a bad lord. He mistreats his followers, and on him you can exact a terrible revenge. And in fact, there's a lot of textual evidence that people in this period in England were wrestling very hard with Christian notions of forgiveness and turning the other cheek. And they were pretty much concluding that that was a part of the Bible that you didn't have to take literally. In other words, they're taking Christianity and they're adapting it to fit the warrior ethos that they're used to. And this makes it a lot more palatable for them to accept Christianity. So that's some of the evidence that the acceptance of Christianity is gradual and that the kind of Christianity people practice is very much influenced by their existing culture. Now, one big reason why the Christian faith doesn't make faster progress is that it's just very difficult to create the kind of infrastructure you need in a big area like England when it's overwhelmingly rural. It's hard to set up a network of churches that is going to cover the whole country. That is going to take a very long time. English church leaders take a rather sensible approach to the problem of covering so much territory. Rather than attempt the task of building little churches in every tiny village, they would never have managed that. Instead, they encourage the building of larger churches, known as minsters, that would serve a rather extensive area roundabout. They'd be staffed by several priests, at least. Sometimes these priests were following a religious rule. They were monks. Sometimes not. It varied. But these priests would take it in turn to make a circuit of the surrounding area to minister to the people. Now, the problem with these minster churches is that there isn't one overarching plan for the whole country. There isn't even one whole plan for a diocese. They're very ad hoc. The coverage could be uneven. If you're lucky, you live near one. 
If you're not, you might have no church that you could reasonably get to on a regular basis. So some people have very abundant religious provision, others have none at all. But despite the lack of a well-planned and extensive infrastructure, the Anglo-Saxon church does seem to have produced its share of saints, and their biographies demonstrate that they're very revered by the lay faithful. For example, the life of St. Cuthbert. He lived in the late 7th century. The life of St. Cuthbert talks about people crowding around visiting clerics whenever they appear in a village. There are stories of miracles that the saints perform, and in these miracles you see the whole social hierarchy represented from top to bottom, everybody involved in the practice of the faith. And monasteries are very numerous in Anglo-Saxon England, and that means that people are supporting them financially. They couldn't have existed otherwise. Monasteries are founded on lands given to them by kings or nobles, but the humbler sort of people, they are also supporting monasteries by giving alms when they visit them on pilgrimage. These monasteries are sometimes just for men, sometimes just for women, but there's also this very distinctive form of monastery in England called the double monastery, which is for monks and nuns ruled by an abbess. And we've already encountered one of these. This is the great double monastery at Whitby, ruled over by Abbas Hild, where the Synod of Whitby took place. Some of these monastic communities were large, many were tiny, but all of them depended on the support of the lay community. And the success of Anglo-Saxon monasticism is certainly proof that the Christian faith, however people choose to believe in it, however they choose to practice it, it had struck deep roots by the end of the 7th century in England. People believe it's worth supporting. So, to sum up what we've covered today, life in Anglo-Saxon England varied depending on where you are on the social hierarchy and where you are physically, what community you live in. It could be harsh, it could be often violent, particularly for the people at the top who are playing for the biggest stakes. But the Christian faith does give people in Anglo-Saxon England a meaningful frame of reference. It penetrates their lives to an increasing degree, and it probably gives them some spiritual consolation for the material privations that they suffered. And they were going to need all the solace they could get, because England was about to be invaded. And we'll meet the new invaders next time.